0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 1st, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional cases and questions. This week, the Ninth Circuit took its first crack at construing new Supreme Court First Amendment case law, the evolving area of commercial and corporate speech, and a ruling that blocks a San Francisco law that would have required health warning labels on soda advertisements. But for constitutional attorneys and general court watchers out there expecting new clarity on this developing doctrine, you'll be disappointed. The en banc panel produced four divergent opinions, each with distinct interpretations of last spring's SCOTUS ruling on another Ninth Circuit appeal. In that Supreme Court case, Nifla v. Becerra, a five-judge conservative majority headed by Justice Thomas, reaffirmed and reinforced the First Amendment protections held by commercial speakers— There, speakers at issue were religious groups operating pregnancy clinics, but the court's holding reads more broadly to apply to more common commercial speakers like corporations. And those sorts of speakers were the ones challenging the soda advertisement health warning in this Ninth Circuit case. The American Beverage Association and the California Retailers Association were the two main plaintiffs advocating the interests of the country's soda producers and sellers. They, of course, objected to the health warning, San Francisco sought to place on soda advertisements, which warned consumers that sugar-sweetened beverages contribute to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. Yesterday's ruling sided with the beverage companies effectively striking down the city's law as an impermissible infringement on the soda maker's free speech rights, but the group of 11 judges took four pretty distinct jurisprudential paths to do so, and in just a few minutes we'll be joined by two Amici in the case— Wen Fa, an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, and Ted Merman, a public interest attorney heading the Public Good Law Center and Berkeley Law's Consumer Law and Economic Justice Center. They'll help make sense of this very nascent NIFLA doctrine. First, though, let me remind you, as always, that listeners of our podcast are very cordially invited to claim one hour of CLE credit for having listened. It's simple enough to do. Just find this podcast on the dailyjournal.com site, then listen to it. Once you're done, click a link to a short true-false test that should appear on that dailyjournal.com site. Take that in one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. Claiming that credit and tendering the associated modest fee to do so is greatly appreciated by us because it helps us continue to make available the podcast outside of our usual paywall. And now, it's time for our opening briefs. The Supreme Court's midterm break continued this week and will next week, too, until The justices convene in mid-February for their next conference.
1: In the Ninth Circuit,
0: this morning, two qualified immunity decisions issued, favoring defendant law enforcement agencies. In one long-running matter, inmates had sued after outbreaks of valley fever plagued state prisons beginning in 2005. The plaintiffs claimed this constituted an Eighth Amendment violation, and also African American inmates claimed 14th Amendment violations because they claimed it to be particularly susceptible to the malady panel, though, held that being free from valley fever spores was not a clearly established constitutional right at the time of the outbreaks. And on Tuesday, a unanimous panel upheld a federal program used to track individuals the government believes might be connected with terrorist activity. A handful of plaintiffs had sued over being listed on the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative for innocuous behavior, like photographing an art exhibit or converting to Islam. Attorneys for the challengers claimed the standards used to list tracked individuals were arbitrary and capricious, but the panel disagreed. And to the circuit's bench might soon be added three nominees announced Wednesday by the president. Two had earlier been identified by the White House, Kenneth Lee, a partner at Jenner and Block, and munger and Olson partner Daniel Collins. The third was Daniel Bress, a partner with Kirkland and Ellis in Washington. Be sure to check both the print and virtual pages of the Daily Journal for our beat reporter Nick Sonnenberg's coverage of those nominations and the ongoing push and pull between the White House and California's senators. And in California's Supreme Court, two review grants issued this week, one in a case regarding procedures by which citizens can challenge local water rate increases, and another involves criminal procedure relating to the filing of unitary informations. As Judge Aguda put it in her dissent and concurrence in yesterday's First Amendment commercial speech ruling, the Supreme Court broke new ground in its decision last term in Nifla v. Becerra. But exactly what sort of new free speech jurisprudence will be constructed upon that new ground will now be decided in the lower courts, like the Ninth Circuit. And if yesterday's fairly balkanized result is any indication, the blueprints are still being developed. The 11 judges all agreed that San Francisco's soda ban should be blocked, but as to why it should be blocked, the panel was much less harmonious. We're joined first today by Wen Fa. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. He filed an amicus brief in support of the beverage company plaintiffs and joins us now to help make sense of this ruling. Wen, thanks for being on our show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So here in uh, American Beverage versus the city and county of San Francisco is really the, the Ninth Circuit's first opportunity to apply some newly created First Amendment law to apply the the new doctrinal gloss created last term by the Supreme Court and another Ninth Circuit could appeal, NIFLA versus Becerra. So maybe we could just start there with a, a brief revisiting of, of what that case was all about and sort of its salient First Amendment points. So as most listeners will know, that, that NIFLA case dealt with uh, government-compelled speech of there some crisis pregnancy centers, generally religiously affiliated clinics that would tend to counsel their patients against seeking uh, abortions, the compelled speech there was a notice requiring the clinics to let their patients know that uh, abortion services and other reproductive services were available from the state for fairly inexpensive prices. The Supreme Court thought that that was impermissible infringement of First Amendment rights of those clinics. Remind me, I guess, to sort of the salient pieces of that ruling and any sort of new First Amendment Doctrine created in this context of compelled compelled speech of sort of professional or commercial actors.
2: Right. So uh, in that that case, that case, as you noted, know, was decided by the Supreme Court. He often actually pers- participated in the merits in that case, but I think you know uh, that case was still very interesting for what it said about professional speech and commercial speech. To address the professional speech point first, the many courts of appeals have said that professional speech enjoys a lesser degree of scrutiny, and I think the Supreme Court correctly rejected that approach in saying that, you know, regardless of your whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or any other sort of professional speaker, you still have the same degree of First Amendment rights. With respect to the commercial speech uh, aspect of that case, there has been decisions by lower courts, including interpreting, I should say, a case called Zouter, a Supreme Court case called Zouter, which held that when you're compelling commercial speech, then that should be subject to reasonableness review. And the Supreme Court also rejected that line of thinking in, in saying that, well, in order to be, you have to show that a law is not unduly burdensome in order to uphold a law under that review, and the Supreme Court actually uh, struck down both of the, the the two laws that you described in your um, introduction.
0: Yeah. So maybe kind of the one one broad takeaway, as as you say, from that ruling is that basically everyone kind of comes to the table with uh, the same strength of First Amendment rights, whether you're a professional speaker, an attorney advertising your trade, or a commercial speaker advertising your product. Everyone basically has the Sort of the same robust First Amendment rights, and then we'll kind of get into the ways in which they can be limited but but by and large, you want to regard all actors as having sort of the same rights under the First Amendment. Is that roughly a way to say it?
2: Right, exactly. So I, I think you know going back to um, a case about students wearing the black armbands in in high school um, in a famous decision called Tinker versus Des Moines, uh, the Supreme Court said that... Children don't shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. And I think similarly, in the NIFLA decision, in the professional speech analysis, the court has said, well, you don't you don't shed your First Amendment rights when you show up to go to work as a doctor or a lawyer or any sort of other professions that uh, the government might decide to regulate.
0: That makes perfect sense, uh, you know, de- describing it as, as that principle that everyone enjoys First Amendment protections at a st- similar Level, but it, it also is the case that you know folks maybe following that case would think, okay, sure. In different contexts, like professional speech context, it it seems like it's the case, and maybe it seems like it is reasonable that the government would have more of a, a power to regulate that sort of speech. If you hear uh, attorney advertising on TV, you're not unfamiliar with the many sort of uh, disclaimers that come at the end of the commercial, like you know you can't guarantee these outcomes and. The, the results here are not necessarily representative of what you'll get that's sort of all government compelled speech you don't really think too much about it if you hear uh, you know during the Super Bowl this weekend uh, a drug commercial you'll hear at the end of that of course lots of disclaimers about the potential pitfalls of any particular uh, product so I guess it, it sort of seems like in the real world there is that sort of speech seems more regulatable I mean maybe NIFLA doesn't totally displace that idea but, it does you're saying to at least some extent, right?
2: Right, and I, I think it's important to note two things. One, those advertisements have been upheld mostly on the grounds that they were they were necessary to correct uh, possible um, deceptive conduct. So you have disclosures saying, for example, okay, we don't charge one certain lawyers don't charge uh, one type of fees, but they do in some circumstances charge another type of fees. To where the, the consumers might otherwise be deceived. And second, I think it's important to note that although one thinks of doctors and lawyers as, as being the only people covered under the professional speech doctrine, in fact, that's not true. Um, courts have used the professional speech doctrine to cover a wide array of individuals, ranging from you know, truck drivers to bartenders to barbers. One court even applied it to fortune tellers, so it's a very, very broad category. And uh, I'm glad to see that the court rejected a lesser standard for people working in those professions.
0: Then with that all as, as useful preface uh, and context, let's turn to, to the case at issue here and specifically the, the government conduct challenged. The, the city and county of San Francisco sought to a warning label on advertisements of, of sugar-sweetened beverages, generally sodas. But tell me a bit more about that warning, I guess what it is. Intended to what sort of message it t- intended to convey to consumers, and uh, the 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 context and the places in which it, it would appear.
2: Right. So the warning, the government mandated warning, required advertisers to say uh, in advertisements for for these cola products that added sugar contributes to obesity, um, sugar to obesity, tooth decay, and uh, other sets of health problems. And they required these advertisements um, to contain the disclosure that was 20% of the advertisement. So it's a a very large, compelled disclosure here. What our arguments were that this should not be subjected to a low standard of review for uh, compelled commercial speech. Basically, that compelled commercial speech, when the government requires you to say something, that should be treated the same way as when the government forbids you from saying something. So that was our primary argument in the Ninth Circuit in the inbank decision yesterday. Uh, there, there were several separate opinions, but they all held – they all agreed with our position that this law is unconstitutional, though they varied on the reasoning for reaching that result.
0: Maybe just before we get into exactly the those varied reasonings, and you're right, there were four separate opinions, all with sort of separate qualms and, and different approaches as to how to apply NIFLA here. But it took me a second to to realize, you know, just why that NIFLA ruling is the one that is applied here. I mean, the actors seem slightly different there. The complaining actor is a, a group of religious organizations running pregnancy clinics hoping to to, to lower the amount of abortions sought in the state. Um, here, the complaining party is largely the, the soda industry, a commercial actor. They're previously, you know, more of a religious actor. Um, it seemed like the facts and the context were a bit different in those cases, but I suppose the constitutional question is is essentially the same. Is that fair to say?
2: Right. So so I think the um, with regard to the professional speech aspect of NIFLA, that is not very on point in the American Beverage Association case. But with respect to the compelled commercial speech doctrine, whether um, the government can basically do whatever it wants when it seeks to compel commercial speech, I think that is relevant here uh, for, for the reason that, you know, the the, the centers in NIFLA were uh, providing a service for, for payment. And uh, similarly with the Uh, The plaintiffs here, they were providing, you know, advertisements and service for for payments. And the courts, you know, some courts have held that basically when the government mandates some sort of uh, compelled speech, when the government tells you what to say, that should be treated differently as when the government tells you what not to say. And our amicus briefs was mostly disagreeing with that position.
0: Let's go ahead and dive into the opinion then, or the opinions. The majority is written by Judge Graeber, and I think represents um, a cohort of seven judges here. I think it's fair to say it's a, a pretty narrow approach. It does sort of only a, a small piece of the, the constitutional arithmetic that could be invoked here. It, the majority says, okay, if we're applying NIFLA here for the first time, and like in NIFLA, we have a compelled speech here by, from the government, so we'll look to see if this uh, Zauderer exception applies, the one you mentioned, that would essentially apply something like rational basis kind of plus scrutiny. But in order for that exception to apply, you have to have three factors. The compelled speech has to be purely factual. It has to be non-controversial, which tripped up the government compelled speech in, in NIFLA. And it has to be not unduly burdensome. The majority here started with that last factor and really only addressed that factor. It said, okay, the the warning here is, 20% of any potential advertisements, it takes up 20% of the space on a billboard or a magazine ad, and that's that's too burdensome. The 20% size seems like it would interfere with the message of the advertisers. Probably the message could be have gotten across with something half that size, maybe 10% of a advertisement or a billboard. And so that's going to be the end of our analysis. I guess talk to me about the nature of that fairly narrow approach and, and what uh, the majority is saying here.
2: Right, so I, I think in terms of the result, I think Judge Graeber's opinion reaches a pretty common sense, uh, conclusion where, which is basically if you have an advertisement on any advertisement that says buy our product, if you have a 20% requirement saying that, a 20% disclosure saying don't buy our product, that's going to be unduly burdensome. So I think that part of it is fairly reasonable and a common sense conclusion. But I think the uh, the majority and Judge Ikuda's concurrence disagree on whether, you know, the three things you listed, whether uh, if, if one, purely factual, two, not controversial, three, not unduly burdensome. If that's an application, they disagree on whether that's an application of the Zauderer test or whether if one of those three things are true, then perhaps you get away from the Zauderer test and start applying the sort of heightened scrutiny that we see in traditional First Amendment cases. Um, I tend to agree with Judge Ikuda's test uh, that, you know, basically Zauderer should be a very, very limited exception because when the government requires you to say something, that's, uh, that should be treated the same as when the government forbids you from saying something. It raises pretty much the same First Amendment concerns.
0: There's been other kind of be between the the majority opinion and, and, and Judge Akuta. and we'll get a bit more into Judge Okuda's opinion in a second, but they kind of squabble in the footnotes in particular about the general, the ways in which courts have generally been okay with governments applying health and safety warnings to, to products. The majority says NIFLA didn't really disturb that you know, line of reasoning that generally governments can require health and safety warnings, but Judge Okuda says that only sort of those sorts of warnings that have been sort of long-standing, going back uh, a long way are appropriate, so that that would include one on soda advertisements. Can you talk to me about that dispute?
2: Sure. Well, you know, I think that uh, NIFLA did contain that, that health and safety uh, exception, so to speak, in sort of as a brief aside. But I, I think just the mere fact that the government asserts that something is related to health and safety doesn't really doesn't really militate in favor of subjecting that law to a lower standard of review. I mean, for for example, the government could say could say pretty much anything is justified under a health and safety reason. But the purpose of the tiers of scrutiny and a heightened level of review is to determine whether the disclosure is really necessary to further a health and safety. Uh, reason And I think that's where, you know, we're talking about Judge Graber and Judge Acuta's disagreement here, but I think that's where Judge uh, Kristen's concurrence actually illuminates the issue a little bit, because the disclosure required uh, advertisers to say that added sugar uh, alone contributes to obesity and diabetes and tooth decay. And Judge Kristen's concurrence made it clear that she would have uh, struck down that law Um, just based on the fact that it's not really factual. And she cited uh, reviews by the Mayo Clinic and others saying that actually it's unknown whether added sugars uh, contributes to those adverse health effects.
0: So getting just a a bit more deeply into Judge Okuda's concurrence here, noted at the top that she agreed with the result, but essentially none of the the reasoning of the majority. It seems like Judge Okuda also takes exception with just the, the process through which the majority applies the test. So, okay, as you say, if the government compels some speech on the part of a, an actor here, a commercial actor, then maybe the, the you start with the presumption that that's uh, under Niffla a content-based restriction, and that's going to trigger some heightened scrutiny, unless, as we've said, that solderer exception applies, and it only applies if there, like you said, um, three factors met: the disclosure is purely factual, it's non-controversial, and it's not unduly burdensome. If that exception doesn't apply, then you do apply that heightened scrutiny. So as we said, the majority only really looked at one of the factors of the Sotterer exception, said that disclosure or the warning label failed it. That's the end of the story. But Judge Okuda sort of chastens the majority, saying you have to do the whole process. So you should examine essentially all three of those Sotterer factors. And then if you're not going to apply the exception, you have to go through the actual heightened scrutiny analysis too. I guess why is that important to, to, I mean, courts often will do the least work, least analytical work possible. Why is Judge Akuta saying you have to do this whole process and do the the heightened scrutiny analysis and not just dismiss based on not meeting the Zadra exception?
2: Right, uh, because I think uh, you know in many cases, the standard of review really matters for the ultimate outcome. And what Judge Acuta is saying is that, look, you have to apply intermediate scrutiny or heightened scrutiny to the case. Um, if the government told uh, the soda advertiser that it couldn't say anything, I think every party here would would agree that you apply intermediate scrutiny to see if it's if the restriction is substantially related to an important governmental interest. Here, where the government is telling the soda advertiser that they must say something, the same standard applies. And that really matters in a lot of cases where, you know, you have the sort of intuition about whether or not to uphold a law or strike down a law. And I think that's what really where it matters. Uh, I think Judge Akuta is saying that the Zauder exception correctly should be read as a limited exception. And the normal standard, the heightened standard should apply for not just First Amendment restrictions, not just restrictions on free speech, but also compulsion of speech.
0: Do you think she's right based on that, that NIFLA instructs courts to go through that whole process? Or is that an open question? You know, the extent to which a court has to, to do all that arithmetic? Do you have a sense on that?
2: Well, I, I think she is right, but I also do think it's it's an open question. Zouterer was decided decades ago, and, uh, you know, no court, you know, I think the court, there there still should be, there still could be a case, and I think there likely will be a case, examining that Dauder decision and the extent to which it applies. But I, I do think she's right in that that speech restrictions should be treated the same as speech compulsions. I mean... Speech compulsions. There have been many studies done. They have tremendous ability to distort the intended message of the speaker. For example, you know, for example, if a if an advertiser said something like, "Oh, this product is bad," then a lot of people might not end up buying the product because you know, it takes away from the core message, which is obviously to buy this product. Uh, in other examples, the compelled disclosures themselves have the ability to be misleading. So, for example, if there were a compelled disclosure that required uh, broccoli manufacturers to say that broccoli is cholesterol-free, you know, some people might think, oh, well, this broccoli is cholesterol-free, other broccoli isn't, where, in fact, no broccoli, uh, broccoli in general, doesn't contain cholesterol. So so I think it's it's really an important decision, an important opinion, by which to consider uh, compelled speech, and I think it. Is, I think this is, is an issue that might get up to the Supreme Court in the next two or three years.
0: Can I ask you about um, one argument that's in in the the briefs from the City and County of San Francisco about kind of the focus of the compelled compelled speech and commercial speech doctrine? And that that argument is that courts care about government not impeding commercial speakers' rights, and the court said this in over mostly because of consumers, that the court wants to make sure consumers get sort of complete information, that that the communication channels between the, those parties are not obstructed by the government too much. And so I guess with the focus being on the consumer, the argument goes, it's not that big of a problem for the government to make the commercial speaker speak more, even if it's something the commercial speaker wouldn't want to say. because. The courts, the governments aren't so worried about what the commercial speaker wants to say. They're mostly worried about what the consumer is hearing. You know, what's the? I, I didn't hear that much. I didn't hear much of that argument being dealt with in the opinion at at all. So maybe the court doesn't really lend much credence to it, or maybe doesn't think it matters to the analysis here. Do you have any thoughts on on that?
2: Right. Well, uh, you know that that line of reasoning has been applied by some courts. I disagree with that. I think. It, you know, speech is ultimately a right that is given to the speaker. A speaker has a First Amendment right uh, to speak his or her message. But even arguing on those terms that, that speech is necessary only to help the consumers, even even taking that for granted, I still think that, com- that compelled commercial speech raises a host of problems. One is, you know, there have been many studies done saying that once a consumer sees a bunch of different messages and warnings, he'll become desensitized uh, to those warnings, or he, he or she might not understand um, everything that is being labeled on a product. And I think that makes sense. There's only so many things, you know, in this past, fast-paced world that one can process. And if you're picking up a product and you have to read 20 or 30 different things, um, I think it's just common sense that you won't be able to, to process all of those things, and you won't want to pay attention to any of those things. So I think even under the view that speech is necessary to help consumers, compelled commercial speech still raises a, uh, an entire host of First Amendment problems.
0: One sort of just other overall problem it seemed that Judge Acuta had with the majority's opinion here is that at least – as I read it, it seemed like Judge Acuta thought the majority's opinion by focusing on the burdensome extent or the burdensome factor essentially alone was almost saying that, hey, if you just make this warning label a bit smaller, say 10 percent, and you you uh, make that law, that we might be OK with that. Now, the majority specifically says we're not saying that, but do you think like Judge Acuta is reading the majority opinion as – a st- in, in substance putting that message across that the this warning label totally might have been okay if it was just a bit smaller
2: well I, I think you might get hints of that in the majority opinion uh, just based on how much they uh, focused on that and what they said about you know maybe the the you know maybe the uh, disclosure citing studies showing that warnings covering only 10% of the image um, could be effective but as you pointed out, the majority did say that they're not holding, you know, that a warning occupying only 10% of the product label or advertisement is necessarily valid. Um, and I think that warning would probably still raise problems for the for the reasons that Judge Acuta cites that it would still not be purely factual, it would not be uncontroversial, and even a 10% warning, I think, would. Could be burdensome, unduly burdensome. Every product, every billboard, every brochure that an advertiser uh, puts out to the public has to contain the government's message, which is basically "don't buy this product." Um, I think that I, I think the court could certainly hold that that is unduly burdensome for the advertiser.
0: You mentioned Judge Christian's uh, concurrence, but also Judge Nguyen wrote an, uh, an interesting concurrence. I thought that. Sort of frames uh, another pretty clear disagreement among the the panel here mm-hmm. as to one other question when Zauderer can be can be applied. We, so we've mentioned that there are three factors involved in the Zauderer exception, but but more broadly, um, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of ag- agreement as to whether just the exception itself can be used in cases where the the government compelled speech is not trying to correct some theoretically, or potentially misleading advertisement. So Judge Nguyen says, you know, hey, the Zotter exception only applies if the government's trying to step in and add its own speech onto advertisements that otherwise might be misleading. I think in that case, it was an attorney advertisement making it maybe seem like you wouldn't have to pay for your uh, case if, if you didn't win. But of course, you would have to at least pay for like court fees, whatever. And so that, so Judge Nguyen says, you know, that's not right. We shouldn't be even like fainting towards the Zouter exception because the speech here, the, you know, advertising soda, say, hey, come drink soda. That's not potentially misleading. Uh, tell me a bit about that dispute among the different concurrences and sort of where the law is on that point.
2: Right. So I think that's an issue that the Supreme Court might might address in the next, you know, two, three, or five years, whether the Zouter exception does apply to to laws that are directed at more than correcting misleading commercial speech and i think Judge point has a really good point because you know the government always asserts that its law is necessary to further some purpose why not make the government prove it if the government says well this law is necessary to further health and safety or this other law is necessary to further some other reason i mean that's all that the heightened uh, standard of review does it's not saying that the government can never enact such a law. It's just requiring the, the government to provide facts to prove that a law which restricts speech is necessary to further um, some sort of important or compelling governmental interest. I
0: guess how might that relate Or how might sort of any of these disagreements between the the different concurrences in the majority here relate to this other case that's very similar, um, the CTIA case, the CTIA versus Berkeley case there, the the warning challenge was a city of Berkeley ordinance requiring cell phone retailers, I think, to let prospective cell phone customers know that carrying a cell phone could subject them to levels of of radio frequency radiation um, that would exceed the recommended limit. That case was... That warning was approved by a Ninth Circuit panel, but then the Supreme Court vacated that decision to be sort of reconsidered in light of NIFLA. The majority and Judge Akuda also sort of skirmish over whether NIFLA means that CTIA case was wrongly decided. The majority says NIFLA doesn't call into question that case. Judge Akuda says pretty clearly it does. Tell me a a bit more about that.
2: Right. So as you mentioned, that case was remanded now. After after the decision in Nifla, and I, I think that you know this case would will be relevant for for that case because that case also deals with the outer scope just as this this case does. As I understand the facts of that CTIA case, the City of Berkeley requires phone disclosures to disseminate a particular message about cell phones that that has been rejected. Uh, the message has been rejected uh, scientifically by the federal the SEC the so you know I think it does implicate whether um, the city of Berkeley could require compelled disclosures in that way
0: okay maybe just one one last one i in, in reading this opinion it, it sort of seems to me like we're at the beginning of some development now in 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 the circuit and I guess around the country when it comes to this area of first amendment speech uh, corporate uh, speech and compelled speech on advertisements um, is that Fair to say, I guess where might you see it going if if you were to to follow Judge akuta's reasoning? It seems like there are probably government regulations on corporate speech out there that she would also probably want to strike down. Um, and your view is this, you know, going to be a, a new sort of First Amendment front for a while?
2: Yeah, I believe it will be just because there are so many big issues and sort of coming up recently on on this matter. For example laws requiring uh, restaurants to uh, disclose estimated caloric amounts in food, and uh, even more importantly than that, laws that require uh, certain producers to disclose whether or not a product has been made with GMOs or has come in contact with GMO ingredients. Um, so that's really going to be a really big issue, I think, in the next three to five years, Um uh, the standard of review review sometimes is dispositive to how a court decides a question, whether the court strikes down a law or upholds a law. So I think there's a lot of very, very uh, interesting and fascinating uh, topics around this issue.
0: Well, we'll we'll stay tuned for those then. Um, But for now, we'll leave it there. Wen Fa from the Pacific Legal Center. Thanks a lot for being on our show. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Ted Merman is the executive director and co-founder of the Public Good Law Center and heads the Consumer Law and Economic Justice Center at Berkeley Law. He argued in an amicus brief in this case that the challenged health warning did pass constitutional muster. He joins us now to help decipher why the court thinks it didn't and what sort of warning could. Ted, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. Okay, uh, so really a, a range of views here from the Ninth Circuit en banc panel in this case. In which you filed an amicus brief in support of the the City of San Francisco's health warning to be affixed to soda advertisements, certain ones, at least. Some the, the, the range of views. Um, <clears throat> it seems like certain judges have more sort of superficial or maybe even cosmetic problems with the warning, while other concerns are a bit more substantive with the way the with the warning and also the way the court sort of handles the First Amendment. Doctrinal approach to what the, the city is trying to do here. Let's get into to all those. the The majority ruling, it seems to me, focuses mostly on just the the cumbersome nature of the the warning here, seeming to take issue with the fact that it's uh, occupies twenty percent of an advertisement um, and that that's just too unduly burdensome. And so, for that reason, it it fails the the the, the level of scrutiny here, the the Zodder standard. Does that suggest that under the majority's view, the, I think seven justices out of 11 here signed on to that, that a smaller warning would maybe be okay if it was, say, half the size? What was your take on the majority's ruling?
1: I think it's fair to say that the majority signaled to the city and county of San Francisco that a smaller warning, say, occupying 10%, uh, would most likely pass muster. They explicitly said that they weren't promising anything but that uh, their main concern, indeed the only concern that they addressed in the opinion, was with the size of the warning and the border around it.
0: Now, there's a one concurrence by Judge Kristen, who views instead of the unduly burdensome prong, takes issue with the purely factual prong. So the, that one's out of a requirement is that the the compelled speech, the, the warning label of this nature must be purely factual, and then her reading and also Chief Judge Thomas' reading, the label here was not purely factual, uh, mostly because the statement that sugars contribute to diabetes wasn't exactly accurate, that type one diabetes is generally a result of sort of genetic factors beyond a person's control, not based on a sugar-heavy diet, and so the label saying not making that distinction was was not purely factual. How'd you read her opinion? And do you also sort of see that as maybe suggesting if the label had made that distinction, it would have passed muster with them?
1: I think you're quite right. I think that ultimately this is a 9-2 decision in many ways. I think that uh, you identify an important procedural and an important substantive issue with Judge Kristen's decision. It was made clear at oral argument. Indeed, uh, the chief judge chimed in as well on the question of type 1 versus type 2 diabetes uh, and spend a good amount of time in the opinion explaining that that's their real concern. This is a substantive issue. What that suggests is that if San Francisco were to say type 2 diabetes and make that explicitly clear in the warning that that would remove much, maybe all of those two judges' concerns about the disclosure requirement, The procedural issue that you identify is a very good one. And that is that the Zauderber test set out by the majority has at least three elements. Uh, One of them is that the disclosure requirement cannot be unduly burdensome or unjustified. The other two are that it must be purely factual and uncontroversial. And that is not something that the majority... Reached, it is something that I think was the basis for Judge Kristen's opinion. What happens when the majority does reach that, or what would have happened if the majority reached that? Uh, question is a good one, and I, that's a, it's a, a, I think, an area for advocates and localities, anyone interested in disclosure requirements, to focus
0: on. You mentioned that uh, essentially we have sort of a nine-to-two ruling here. Let's get into to that. the qualms of the other two judges that wrote. One quarrel that uh, Judge Nguyen had with the majority's approach is more sort of doctrinal. She was worried that you know you only apply this sort of lower level of scrutiny, the sort of Zotterer test, which looks to me a bit like sort of rational basis plus uh, review. You only apply that in cases where the government is trying to add a, its own message onto what it thinks otherwise would be sort of misleading commercial speech. In Judge Wynne's view, then here, soda advertisements are not really inherently misleading, and so the whole approach of, of really referencing Zotterer and bringing in that test is inapt; is not appropriate here. Um, that seems to be a point on which the— a very important point and one, obviously, on which the, the court— altogether is not totally in lockstep, it's a fair
1: I think that's true, and there have been opinions, uh, dissenting opinions, that raised that issue before, as Judge Nguyen points out. She's not alone among all the judges of the Ninth Circuit in having this concern. However, there is no circuit in the United States that has adopted the standard that she proposes. It's, mm-hmm. The circuits are now unanimous. That Zauderer, that more lenient, uh, rational basis or rational basis plus type of analysis applies to compelled commercial speech uh, requirements that are factual, non-controversial in nature, and that are not unduly burdensome or unjustified, whatever the topic or the reason for the government's imposition of the requirement may be. So, the, there there was a time <laughs> when a circuit or two went the other way. They have since superseded. Those opinions, and so uh, we are. There's now unanimity ar- around the country on that issue among the circuits. The United States Supreme Court has never uh, decided the issue.
0: And I suppose the the Supreme Court had the opportunity in NIFLA. I mean, this case is sort of all about uh, the Ninth Circuit's first construal of that NIFLA case. But the and there, sort of the the Zotterer approach was used, and it's also there. There was a context where misleading speech was not really at the heart of what was fought over. Um, does that sort of suggest that the court like approved of this approach to Zotter that the majority uses, or did it sort of expressly say it wasn't wading into it, if you recall?
1: Uh, the, <laughs> the the United States Supreme Court did not address the issue. And Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion, I, I think uh, would not have agreed with the majority's approach here, but I don't think he had four colleagues who agreed with him the right now we don't know what the united states supreme court will ultimately say on on that although as i say there's unanimity among the circuits that have looked at the question nifla itself which obviously looms large in this soda warnings or ssb warnings opinion is or could be at least in part construed as a case about misleading messages the one could certainly have said that california Thought that uh, pregnant women were being misled by crisis pregnancy centers, and that that was the reason that they thought the the disclosures were necessary. I, in full disclosure, we filed a brief that argued precisely that, uh, but that's not something that, that the United States Supreme Court chose to adopt or uh, analyze in its uh, ultimate opinion.
0: And the only other separate written opinion here is from Judge Okuda, who I think is... It's fair to say it takes the most exception with the, the approach taken by the majority here. I read her opinion to essentially be saying to her colleagues that they're they're not really getting the central thrust and the main points of of NIFLA and just I guess how consequential and how sort of a how much new ground it breaks in terms of conspelled speech and in the commercial context. She also seems to say that look, the sort of starting point based on NIFLA is that commercial speakers, professional speakers basically have the same sort of First Amendment rights, and so any government limitation in the form of a warning label, some sort of compelled speech, has to sort of have the presumption of being unconstitutional, has to you presume it would get heightened scrutiny. I think she says maybe even strict scrutiny. So is she saying that, you know, NIFLA, broadly speaking, puts, I guess, commercial speakers, companies on the same footing as individual speakers?
1: It certainly does not do so explicitly. Nifla is a deeply ambiguous decision, perhaps not unlike this one. I think that it cobbled together justices with a different set of views in order to 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 build a single majority opinion. In one could, I suppose, read read Nifla to have established a greater equivalence than there has been before. Justice Thomas has been arguing for that for. Two decades. On the other hand, uh, Nifla did not say that uh, it was establishing an equivalence between commercial and non-commercial speech. Indeed, it never said that the that the speech it was dealing with was commercial at all. So, to take that opinion as having overturned three and a half decades worth of jurisprudence since the Zouter opinion in 1985, I think would be reading too much into it. Indeed, NIFLIC, because it doesn't really offer a different test, a different way of looking at disclosures in the commercial context, could easily be seen as requiring, perhaps, and actually the majority opinion in ABA versus San Francisco does say this, that there isn't perhaps now an additional component to the outer test that It can, that the required disclosure has to be related to the business at hand. You couldn't require a shoe store to post tobacco warnings, for example. Arguably, that was already part of the Zauderer test, but NIFLA does make that observation uh, with respect to crisis, certain of the crisis pregnancy centers that were at issue in that case. So what the ultimate impact of NIFLA is, I think, is uh, very unclear. One thing that I would say that uh, that I think Judge Ikuda raised that is a perhaps a more compelling challenge to the, to the uh, majority's opinion is that the way that the Zauderer test and the alternatives to the Zauderer test, generally the Central Hudson test, are set up and have been set up in most other circuits, and I would argue uh, in the United States Supreme Court, is that one has done an initial threshold assessment to determine which test applies that uh, initial assessment is whether the disclosure is factual and non-controversial if it is then you apply the rest of the outer test if it isn't that's not that you strike down the disclosure it's that you apply a form of heightened scrutiny presumably the central hudson test because that would be symmetrical so I think Judge Acuda had some valid questions to ask regarding how it is that courts will go about, for example, applying the uh, en banc decision here. What is a district court going to do the next time that it encounters a disclosure requirement? And I think that those are questions that the Ninth Circuit is going to have to answer in the future.
0: So in reading Judge Acuda's opinion and also kind of the opinion in total, so in reading Judge Akuta's opinion and sort of the s- suggestion that corporate speakers and commercial speech you know, is really sort of on the same kind of footing as an uh, individual, maybe more core First Amendment speech. It seems like we, uh, one argument that the city put forward is sort of uh, overlooked. That argument gives some basis for why commercial speech might not get as robust First Amendment protections. The, the idea being that, as the city argues in its briefs, courts are concerned with infringements on commercial speech, not because of the burden on commercial speakers, but because of the impact on the, the listeners, the consumers, the folks that hear that consumer information. Um, and so that argument sort of follows that if the concern is about consumers getting information, then it's not really a big deal if the government adds some additional information onto a commercial message. But that idea that kind of philosophy undergirding the First Amendment corporate speech, commercial speech doctrine, doesn't really seem to play into this opinion much, if at all.
1: Uh, let me see if I understand you, that you're saying that the reason that there is reduced scrutiny for compelled commercial factual speech is that we want to encourage, under the First Amendment, the dissemination of useful information to consumers. Right. Exactly. Uh, and that the whole reason that you have a, uh, a more lenient approach in this context, uh, the, and you have a outer test, is to encourage the dissemination of information. I think you're quite right. And I think that that was unfortunately underplayed in the opinions in this case, which focused much more on the mechanics of uh, which tests would apply. I think it's fair to say that there was a lot going on at the court, uh, particularly with respect to the majority opinion in terms of uh, cobbling together a majority of the judges on the panel, finding something that they could
0: agree on. Another dispute, between the majority's opinions, majority's opinion and Judge Acuto also seem to be, I guess, whether, I guess, to what extent health and safety warnings were, you know, sort of exist in this like safe regulatory cul de sac that, you know, First Amendment doctrine generally just sort of lets them go by without too much concern, you know, things like cigarette warnings or, I don't know, just nutrition labels on food. but Judge Akuta seems to say unless they're of, I think she said, ancient origin, health and safety warnings don't really get a sort of First Amendment free pass. I get what. What's the dispute there?
1: Uh, did, she's referring to a line in the in Judge, Justice Thomas's majority opinion in Nifla that uh, was responding to Justice Breyer's dissent, uh, which said, basically, do you really mean <laughs> that the government? is not going to be able going forward to require warnings on plastic bags and on, you know, on drug packaging, on all sorts of on poison bottles, <laughs> on all sorts of things? Do you really mean that strict scrutiny is going to be necessary? And it is, I think, to those that Justice Thomas, or I would uh, suggest more likely all five <laughs> justices in the majority, uh, said, well, we, you know no, we don't have a problem with health and safety warnings that have been traditionally uh, given a, uh, a lower level of review. And uh, the question here, and it is a, dis- it is a uh, dispute between Judge Akuda and the majority in the Ninth Circuit, is did Justice Thomas mean only specific types of health and safety warnings? That is, if, if there's a new product that requires one, would Justice Thomas say, no, I'm sorry, that product wasn't around in 1791? Mm-hmm. And that's more or less just, I mean, that's probably an overstatement of but the general direction of Judge Ikuda's interpretation, or does it mean, well, traditionally, health and safety warnings, that is, all health and safety warnings, have been reviewed under a more lenient standard, and this is one of them, and that's the majority's view.
0: Maybe just one last one, then, I guess, with, uh, with this first sort of very fractured interpretation of NIFLA in mind, and I suppose one... Yet to come in the CTIA versus Berkeley case, a somewhat similar case involving cell phone radiation warnings. Do you think the the city and county of San Francisco can and will sort of go back to the the drawing board with this particular soda warning and and try to come up with with a new one that would pass muster based on the the, the test laid out here by the the split en banc panel?
1: I think that as we've discussed, there's probably nine judges prepared to look with a certain <laughs> amount of favor on a more narrowly drawn, probably slightly rephrased warning on outdoor SSB billboards in uh, San Francisco. The Berkeley case, I think you raised wisely. That is clearly on the court's mind as well. They took the rather unusual step of uh, referring to it. Uh, not only they cited it, and Footnote explained that they were that there was nothing in NIFLA which caused any need for reconsidering of those parts of the NIFLA panel, not the NIFLA, excuse me, the CTIA uh, panel opinion that they were relying on, maybe the en banc court were relying on. That case is still pending, and I do think that's the next that we will hear from the Ninth Circuit on whether and how Nifla has changed the environment for these sorts of disclosures.
0: Okay, so safe to say, plenty more to come, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Ted Merman from the Public Good Law Center and UC Berkeley Center on Consumer Law and Economic Justice. Thanks for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure, Brian. Thank you. And
0: that's our show for February first, two thousand nineteen. Thanks again to both of my guests, Wen Fa and Ted Merman. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to claim one hour of CLE credit from the dailyjournal.com site where this program appears. Also, don't forget to look for us on iTunes in the podcast app. If you search weekly Appellate Report, you should be able to find us there. And doing so, subscribing, rating, reviewing us is all very helpful as it lets us know what we can do better and also helps other folks find the program. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.